You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Smattering of smashing, smoking, spitting, smiling smirkers. Welcome to Good Job Brain, your weekly quiz show and offbeat trivia podcast. This is episode 42, and of course, I am your humble host, Karen, and we are your school of scone scoffing, scallywag scholars. Nice. I'm Colin. I'm Dana. And I'm Chris. This episode is, of course, brought to you by online menswear store Bonobos, the destination for best-fitting pants, sweaters, jackets, and more. And they also supplied prizes for last week's Smarty Pants Listener Challenge, and it's time for me to reveal the answer. So the riddle last week was, tell me where I reside with Spot and Fido on my side. Seven Peaks might be your guide under a regal hat that gleams with pride. And the answer is... It is the Canary Islands. Yes, you actually solved it, Colin. I did, I did. I, I have to admit, I mean, it wasn't solving as so much of a recollection, but so my, my path was, all right, where I reside, a flag with dogs on it, Spot and Fido by my side. I remember really learning that the Canary and Canary Islands is the same root as like canine, which is why there are dogs on the flag. Not the birds. Right, not the bird. So it was really more I just happened to remember that. But yes, Canary Islands, dogs on the flag. The birds are actually named after the island. Mm. Not, oh, really? not Yeah, not the island named after the birds. So yeah, the Canary Islands are off the northwest coast of mainland Africa. Just to finish, yeah, the clue that it was the Seven Peaks also pictured on the flag as well, right? Yeah, yeah. and I think that's the tricky part because Seven Peaks, you'd be like, oh, it's mountain or some sort of a sharp object. But the Seven Peaks are actually, uh, they're seven main islands in the Canary Islands. They all have volcanic sort of origins, so they're kind of like volcanoes, so <laughs> seven volcanoes. So there you go. Uh, we've notified the listeners and congrats to you guys who got the answer right it was a little bit tough one good job and uh today's episode is episode number 42 and 42 is the meaning of life the answer to the answer to life the universe and everything yes the answer to the ultimate question of life the universe and everything from hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy Uh, here's another interesting fact about the number 42 do you guys know what antipodes are yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, they're like the opposite. They're oh, like oh, the opposite oh, places yeah, the on the globe. Yes. Right? Yeah, like yeah, yeah, so you yeah, pick okay, a yes. spot and the antipode is its exact opposite spot if you were to go straight through the middle of the Earth. Yeah. Yep. So in 1966, a mathematician by the name of Paul Cooper, he actually theorized that if you bore a straight hollow tube, like a hole, through Earth, <laughs> and you took out all the air and lava, oh, and, and you if you jumped through mm-hmm. to, the, to the other side, it would take 42 minutes, no mm-hmm. matter what the two antipodes are. <laughs> yes. That'd be Is a fun it? ride. Would you decelerate as well, you're coming so out you, the other side? Well, you would, well, you would accelerate toward yeah. the middle, mm-hmm. right? And then once you pass the middle, you would slowly be decelerating, right? And they would virtually cancel out? Correct. It wouldn't be perfect, right? But they would almost, almost cancel out, right? The first half of the journey is basically free fall acceleration. But, you know, when you pass the center, then the second half consists of exactly equal deceleration. Hmm. So 42 minutes, no matter where the antipodes are. If you can get around the problem of all that magma (laughs) and swirling, yes. (laughs) And without further ado, let's jump into our general trivia segment, Pop Quiz Hotshot. Get your barnyard buzzers ready, and I have a random trivial pursuit card here. Let's do this. 
Blue Wedge. Oh, man, this is hard. Name two of the five German states that start with B. That was Colin. Uh, well, Bavaria, I believe, would be one. Mm-hmm. And, man. Bonn? Is that one? Or is that no, not one? that That's is a, a city. city. Oh. Yeah. Bismarck. Bavaria is one. Berlin. Oh, oh. I centered myself. I was like, no, that's a city. Ah. Uh, Brandenburg. Ah. Bremen from the oh, folk tale. Oh, yeah. And Baden-Württemberg. Oh. So those are the five. All right. And Brandenburg, like the Brandenburg Gate. Gate, yep. yeah. Pink wedge for pop culture. Who made her big screen debut in Sid and Nancy before garnering a Golden Globe nomination for The People vs. Larry Flint? Colin. Uh, was that Courtney Love? Yes. All right, Yellow Wedge. Eleanor Roosevelt appeared on which classic quiz show? Multiple choice. Mm. The $64,000 question, what's my line, or you bet your life? I've never heard of any of these shows. <laughs> I, I will say it's what's my line. I, w- I would guess that as well yeah. with Groucho, right? Yeah, that was yeah. where you had to ask people questions and they would to, tr- to figure out what their line of business was. Oh. Right. So they I'm sure they were quizzing her to find out that she was the first lady of the United States. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Purple Wedge, what is Shakespeare's shortest play? Oh. Colin. I just, I'm taking a step. Is it As You Like It? Incorrect. Mm. I don't know. It is The Comedy of Errors. Mm. I wish this also told you what the longest play is. Oh, yeah, yeah. Green Wedge for Science. If you were born in July, what's your birthstone? Oh. And I guess none of us are born in July. (laughs) Um, I believe it is uh, Garnet. Or no, Ru- that's January. It- oh, sorry. That's is, mine. It- is it is it Ruby? <laughs> yes, it oh, is wow. Ruby. Right. I, my brother one. was born in in July, and I knew it was red, but I didn't know which it was. Ruby. Nice. Okay. Good job. All right. Last question. Orange wedge. Wow. What position was left out of Abbott and Costello's Who's on First routine? Oh. Hmm. Shortstop. Incorrect. Oh, really? I don't know. Oh, geez. Let's see. They do who's on first, what's on second. I don't know. Is third, third base right? Who yeah. Is, who is I don't it? know. Catcher. I'll guess catcher. It is right field. Oh, okay. So the players were who, what? I don't know. I don't give a darn. Why? Because today and tomorrow. Oh, <laughs> good job. That was a that was a tough one. <laughs> That's a good, good question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. In this week's episode, uh, we're trying to gear everybody up with holiday spirits, and one of the best things about holidays is. Uh, other than vacation days, it's the food. Yeah. It's yeah. the eating. Mm-hmm. So today's show is all about holiday foods. Okay, well, I'll start us off with a holiday food quiz. So I'm going to describe the dish, and you tell me what it is. All right. Oh, the name of it. The name of it. First one. Nuts, raisins, and spices held together with beef fat. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh they're a little bit gross, too. <laughs> is Would this be mincemeat? No. Or, no oh, oh that was my yeah, guess. Hold on, hold on. too. Nut, Nuts, raisins, and spices held I'm... together with beef fat. Is it sugar plum? You're very close. Is it? Is it? It's not pudding, is it? 
It's plum pudding. Oh, plum pudding. Oh. They used to call、um, raisins plums. Beef、okay. fat. They actually use、um, beef suet, which is the stuff that's around the kidneys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what they use <laughs> to, to hold. Well, to hold it together. Well, I mean, this is like centuries old. Yeah, and you yeah. have it laying around. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, a sweet roulade of sponge cake and chocolate icing. This、Karen? is a Yule log,、oh. yes, <laughs> which is a rolled up cake that looks like a piece of wood, or otherwise known as a log. A trio of fowl ensconced upon one another. <laughs> <laughs> a turducken. Yes. Or a, Or a Pandora's cushion. Pandora's <laughs> cushion. That's right. Pandora's cushion. A pie made with meat, beef fat, fruit, and spices. Is minced meat pie. Yes.、Right. A medieval precursor to eggnog made with curdled milk and wine. Hmm. Curdled milk. <laughs> Grog? No, that's mold wine. No, that's what I thought. No, I don't. With, with Posset. Posset.、Oh. Yeah, P O S S E T. I've definitely heard of that. I did not、yeah. know that's what that was. Sounds real gross. Yeah. <laughs> Whenever you involve the word curdling, I mean, I've read it in like medieval setting books and things like yeah. that. Yeah, they moved on to eggnog and didn't look back. <laughs> A dish consisting of custard, fruit, sponge cake, and whipped cream arranged in layers. Karen, a trifle. Yes,、ah. fish preserved with lye that has been washed and boiled. That's a、uh, ludafisk. Yes, I love、um, his music. Ludicrous. <laughs> <laughs> Cake made with currant, sultanas, and almonds, originally from Scotland.、Mm. Okay, I'm just gonna not my answer. I'm just kind of freeform. Go for it. Well, yeah, sounds like panettone, which is Italian. Yeah, or stolen,、yeah. which is from Germany.、Mm. What would be the Scottish? Version of this. It's called a Dundee cake. A、huh. Dundee. Yeah. All right. A traditional Norwegian flatbread made with potato, milk, and flour. Oh. And the、oh, the largest in the world is in Minnesota. Actually. Oh God! What is it? Starts with an L. Yes. Oh. oh what is I this? ate this at Disney World in the Norway it's, Pavilion. It's not like it's like it's lum, not a l- l- limping lump.、Oh, what is、oh, it? Oh, you're so cool. It's called lefsa. Lefsa. Yeah. That's、oh. what it is. Okay. And the last one: potato pancakes. Usually topped with applesauce. Laka, 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 and、Love、sour cream. Good, good job, you guys. So Dana, you had mentioned earlier、uh, lutefisk, which is the、uh, Scandinavian、yeah. fish covered in lye and and sort of semi fermented. I have a sort of related dish that I would like to talk about. That's even one step beyond that in terms of craziness. This is the traditional Icelandic dish of hakarl. H- hot Carl, H A K A R L, Hot Carl, Hot Carl, which is essentially fermented shark, but the process is a little nuts.、Okay. So, Hot Carl is made with the Greenland shark, and the way you make the dish is you well, you catch the Greenland shark first. So it, is, <laughs> it assumes you have a Greenland、okay. shark. Seems like、All、that's、right. the hardest part. Step one. Step one: acquire Greenland shark. <laughs> Take the shark. You you gut it. You clean it. Cut off the head. You bury it in a hole in the ground,、mm-hmm, mm-hmm. cover it up with dirt, and then you wait two to three months while it decomposes and putrefies.、Uh-huh. Yep. Okay. You come back, you dig it up, you take what's now sort of a、uh, the remains of the putrefied shark meat.、Mm-hmm. All the liquids, all the liquids would have drained off into this time and have been absorbed into the soil. You hang it up, you let it dry,、okay. and after it's dried, it it sort of has this brownish rind on it, 
you cut off the rind, you chop it up into cubes, and then you eat it. And that's Hakarl. Now, here's where it gets weird. This is reported to be... This it gets is, weird from now. This yeah. is... Yeah, that was the normal part. Okay. That was the normal part of this dish. It's reputed to be the worst-smelling food on the planet. Oh, oh okay. I bet. Right. We've talked about durian. We've talked about lutefisk. This dish may actually take the cake for the most foul presentation. And part of the reason it's so foul has to do with the shark itself. So... Greenland shark on its own is poisonous. If you eat it fresh, it would kill you because uh, it has ridiculously high concentrations of urea, which is, mm-hmm. you know, the, yeah, the, it's what gives urine the ammonia smell. When it, when it combines with water, it, urea turns into ammonia smell. Crazy levels of urea. Pimp's gotta show up. And, uh, a compound called TMAO, which is basically what breaks down into the rotting fish smell. Huh. Like when fish goes bad, you're smelling TMAO that has converted. So, so the, the Greenland shark is high in both of these, so you can't eat it right away. Like, there are stories that if you eat it fresh, you can vomit blood. <laughs> so what the fermentation does is it breaks down these compounds sure. to make them safer to eat. When you eat it, it smells like urine. So... Here's a question. Yes. Why even eat it at all? Why even eat it at all? Why? Well, you know, there are a number of theories that range from this is just a joke to be played on foreigners when they come to Iceland. Uh, like, uh, I could see getting as far as burying the shark so you never have to think about it again. <laughs> it's the part three months later where somebody's like, hey, Ivan, you remember that shark we buried? Do you want to dig it up and hang it in the garage for whatever? <laughs> this is a traditional dish really associated with a midwinter festival in Iceland called the Thorsablad named after Thor. So there is just a bevy of awesome, awesome quotes about Hakarl. And this dish actually has the distinction of it's got the golden trio of uh, celebrity chefs. Anthony Bourdain has covered it on his show. Andrew Zimmern. Andrew Zimmern has uh, covered it on his show. Gordon Ramsay uh, tried to eat it. Uh, Gordon Ramsay famously spit it back up, vomited it. Uh, Even he couldn't keep it down. Anthony Bourdain said it is, quote, the single worst, most disgusting, and terrible tasting thing he's ever eaten. And Anthony Bourdain has eaten a lot of things. Here's some quotes from other people. It's a little like a tuna fish sandwich that's been sitting on the bottom of your lunch bag for three weeks. It resembles a tramp sock soaked in urine. It tastes like someone pooped in your mouth after a bender. Yuck. Um, and every guide I've read, you know, is like, if you're going to go try this for the first time, it warns you. Be prepared to vomit. Be prepared to oh. drink heavily. Just know what you're getting yourself into. The pee you can chew. Mmm, <laughs> 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 who's getting hungry? Whenever we listen to Christmas music, there's the wonderful song, We Wish You a Merry Christmas, in which the carolers tell the person whose house that they're caroling at that they please bring us some figgy pudding. Now, of mm. course, all kids sing this song and nobody actually understands what what figgy pudding is so i decided this was the episode to do the research and figure out what figgy pudding is and so, i just not as i had known people thought it was finger pudding <laughs> not finger pudding. some finger <laughs> uh, so as it turns out figgy pudding is pretty much just a variation on the traditional english christmas pudding we have a lot of listeners in the united kingdom you guys can just go to sleep now because <laughs> you know all about this the only entertainment value is to listen to americans who've never eaten one of these in their lives talk about it <laughs> but everybody you always have christmas pudding at the end of your big 
Christmas dinner. And it is not, I want to really stress, uh, like jello pudding. Right. Like it's, it's, it is a conglomeration. Basically, what you do is you mix together in a bowl breadcrumbs, flour, sugar, and like all kinds of candied fruit. And a lot of alcohol. A lot of rum oh. and brandy. Like a good deal of it. And you use beef suet, as we said. The fat around the cow's kidneys. And <laughs> in, this goes back centuries upon centuries ago. Well, a lot of people in the United Kingdom would make these in around Europe. And you steam it. That's how you cook it all. But what you get is this sort of gelatinous mass. More bready, but like super soaked through with things. After you steam it all through, you have to wait. Some recipes, it takes like a month minimum. One recipe that I found, they call for at least three months of putting it in the fridge and just waiting for everything to just all hang out <laughs> and congeal and become as one. This Almost is like as a featured cheese. in the popular <laughs> cookbook from the time, quick three-month meals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One pot, yes. three-month meals. What else are you doing with your time? Yeah. That's fine. The preparation of this pudding has actually, of course, taken on a lot of traditions and superstitions as well. So some traditions say that you do it on Sunday, the, the Sunday stirrup, where mm. everybody stirs the pudding. Some people say that you have to stir the pudding from east to west, which <laughs> oh is the direction that the old wise men traveled to see Jesus. Some people say that your pudding has to have exactly 13 ingredients in it, one for Jesus and then one for each of the 12 apostles. Awesome. Some people say that the unmarried girls have to stir it or else they'll never get married in the next year. Um, actually, so what the recipe uh, that I was reading said, you can either just serve it as it is, and what you could also do is you could take a quarter cup of brandy, hold it over a flame until the brandy is on fire, then oh. pour it while it's still flaming over the whole yes. pudding, mm. and turn off all the lights and bring it to the table. Oh. And then once the brandy has gone down, that's when you can eat it. You can add coins to the pudding. Oh. People started adding coins into the pudding, and whoever got that slice uh, won the coin. Okay, I've heard about that. But tradition. then it started becoming a little bit more symbolic. So it's like there were coins, but then they'd also put tokens in, like a thimble, which represented thriftiness or prosperity. So if you got the thimble, you would be the one <laughs> who was prosperous that year. <laughs> and, oh, a ring. You might put a ring in there, and the ring would be for marriage. So And so, as it turns out, figgy pudding is Christmas pudding made with figs. <laughs> that just happens to have figs in it. There's this really weird trend among holiday foods where you put items or collectibles or coins or whatever in your food. A lot of these foods are for holidays around the end of the year, and these are very kind of like, you know, good omens or good portents for the things for the new year. Mm -hmm. I can see them sort of tying in with a lot of superstitions. I know there's um, the, the, the king's cake in French culture, and especially in the New Orleans area. Kind of like a, like a pie pastry cake. A tartlet. Kind yeah, of like yeah. a tartlet. Mm -hmm. And there's a ceramic baby Jesus in the cake. Yeah, and yeah, whoever yeah. gets it Huh. Is it's the winner. Jesus. During Chinese New Year, you eat dumplings. Sometimes there's a coin in it. And I remember this as a kid. What no one really thought about was you boil dumplings in really hot water to cook them. And then when you serve them, the ones with the coins are super hot and burning tough <laughs> oh, yeah, because yeah. they've been in boiling water. Yeah. And as a kid, I was like, I don't want the coin. Right. It is funny how these traditions, you know, will stretch back from culture to culture to culture and they'll be sort of analogs and you can see how they how they grew up. Yep. Yeah, One of yeah. the things that I was, as I was looking up holiday foods, uh, I was thinking of looking up the origins of other traditional foods. And I only got as 
far as, you know, green bean casserole? Like, we had it during Thanksgiving. Oh, yeah. You know, you take green yeah. beans, cream of mushroom soup, right. and then you get those French fried French onions. onions. Yeah, right. you yep. sprinkle yep. them over the top, yep. right? It would probably not surprise you in any way whatsoever to know that this was invented in 1955 by the Campbell Soup Company. <laughs> yeah, I, I yeah. think, I, yeah, I, I can totally see that. It's like the grand age of casseroles and also it, the grand age of industrialized recipes. Yep, like, oh my god, frozen green beans, canned soup, preserved and fried preserved onions. fried onions. <laughs> yeah. Some people, I, I don't think they really know that now. Like, it's just sort of entered into the pantheon of traditional uh, Thanksgiving recipes. So one of the holiday foods I found that is very popular in the Midwest and the southern regions of America is Jello salad. And I've oh, yeah. never uh-huh. heard of this oh, before. Yeah, yeah, Growing up as a kid, even, mm-hmm. it just, it's very 70s to me. Like, Jello salad just says so 70s. Yeah, 50s. I agree. I found a recipe from Jello for a holiday treat or a potluck. It's called lime cheese salad. Ah. So you dissolve one package lime jello in one cup hot water, then fold in one cup cottage cheese and one tablespoon mayonnaise. Blend, chill until firm, unmold, garnish with salad greens, (laughs) fill center with seafood salad. What? Make six servings. Place place in kiddie pool. As a kid, I'd be at parties and be like, Mom, why is this Jello cloudy? Jello's yeah. supposed to be transparent. Yes, yeah. it, looks oh, like, it looks like a virus outbreak because of the cottage cheese. And there's so many of these holiday Jello salad recipes mm-hmm. I found in pictures of it. Some call for olives and Velveeta cheese. It's yeah. just so weird. And so I look back. At, okay, where did this all come from, right? Before Jello was made, gelatinous entrees or desserts were thing of luxury. Mm. Very complicated to prepare. Took a long time to cook, to mold it, and then to cool it, to set it. Actually, one of the weird things that they used as a, a, a gelatin substance was isinglass. Do you guys know what isinglass is? It sounds like a Tolkien thing. It sounds beautiful. <laughs> it does. It's from Rivendell. <laughs> like... <laughs> the swim bladders of sturgeons oh. or other fish. So they're huh. like the floaty swim bladders that's kind of like the air pockets. And they would grind it down and dry it and it would have some kind of like a sticky gelatinous characteristic to it. So in the early 1900s, the actual powder, like gelatin powder, mm-hmm. was finally mm-hmm. made. And it kind of changed hands. It wasn't really successful for a while until it met Orator Woodward who has an awesome name, Orator Woodward. He also had little commercial success until he realized something. And this is early 1900s. Homemakers didn't know what to do with a food that pretty much is ready to serve and needed no recipes. All you have to do is mix it with water and all of a sudden you have Mm -hmm. this gelatinous thing that sets. So here's the genius part. He gave people recipes. Hmm. In 1904, Jell-O and his company distributed free cookbooks and booklets, like the green bean casserole thing. It was created to make an artificial need for this product. One of the Jell-O cookbooks published in 1922 is called Jell-O, America's Most Famous Dessert, At Home Everywhere. And it featured vignettes of like different lifestyles of people in America and how they enjoyed Jell-O. And there's a fine line between like marketing and flat out 
lying or, <laughs> or an inaccurate exaggeration because they would have scenes of, oh, here are the Chinese immigrants working on the railroad. They love Jello. They put rice in their Jello. That's how they enjoy it. And they had <laughs> scenes of the Inuit people of Alaska or near the Arctic <laughs> Circle. They enjoy Jello this way. In Mission Country,、uh, the religious people enjoy Jello this way. The gypsies enjoy Jello this way, and obviously they're not true. <laughs> no, no. But who would know? So really, Jello created this need for like elaborate gelatin dishes, and and they're known as congealed salad or Jello salad. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Uh, congealed salad is not a nice description. No. And so by the 1930s, these Jello salads were all the rage. And it kind of coincided with the wartime attitude of using everything you got.、Yeah. Things are rare; you have to yep, save everything. Yep, yep. Oh, here's this handy Jello packet. I'll put all my leftovers and mix it with Jello and make this giant food item. That's a mix of everything. Entering into the post-war phase, they still had that mentality of I have to save everything, but also they want something to look fancy,、mm -hmm. yeah. right? And that was that was the、it、thing does, about Jello. The visual appeal of、yeah. very fancy. So here's some classic retro congealed salad names. Mint Jello with capers. Ugh. Oh, Ugh, why would you do that? I guess it's like capers, like mint jelly with lamb. Oh, like, maybe, maybe, you, maybe. Shredded wheat apple Jello sandwich. Wait, oh, I was on board until the sandwich Shredded part. Shredded wheat and Jello <laughs> together—that's just like a textural nightmare. Asparagus castle? No, <laughs> <laughs> but I want to see it. It、yes. sounds—it sounds like it would look awesome. And of course, these got really elaborate. I remember seeing one of the retro recipes called for flaked fish or canned tuna that they would set in Jello in a shape of a fish, <laughs> which is kind、so、of a Jello fish <laughs> made with flaked fish. At that point, just get a real fish. <laughs> no.、Uh, by the 1950s, these salads became so popular that Jello responded by. Actually, creating and putting out savory and vegetable flavor Jello to make these salads. Okay, because、mm. make... strawberry and tuna fish doesn't sound like it. <laughs> right. Most of the time, they use lime. Like lime Jello was the Jello flavor、mm. to use for for these savory. Yeah,、salads. that's why they're.、Okay. I think that's why they're sort of traditionally you see them in the green.、Mm. Well,、uh, <laughs> let's, let's good time to have a little break. A word from our sponsor as we muster up the courage to talk about food again. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and 
Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And we're back. Welcome to Good Job Brain. And this week we're talking about holiday foods. Yeah. Both uh, delicious and gross. <laughs> sometimes you can... Uh, be both. Yeah, sometimes they can be both, depending on whom you ask. I want to go back a little bit, Chris. You know, you were talking about some of the traditional uh, dishes from the UK. Mm. And I always feel like these old traditional English or Scottish dishes just, they, they have just so much character, maybe, <laughs> oh. the word I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about haggis. So you guys probably have some rough conception of what haggis is, right? Anyone, anyone want yeah. to take a, take a rough stab at describing what haggis is to me? I can't. I think it sounds delicious. Yeah? Okay. Okay, so okay. it's... Made out of, like, a cow's, it's like a giant sausage, but encased in, like, a cow's or a sheep's stomach. And inside is, like, chopped up meats and, like, oatmeal and spices. Am I right? You're, you're fairly close. That yeah, it's delicious. It is traditionally, it's a sheep's stomach. It's a boiled dish served in the sheep's stomach. And inside, you are right, there are spices and stuff. It's not just chopped up meats. What really gets a lot of people is that, the, specifically, what goes inside the haggis are the sheep's lungs and oh. heart. Mm. And also usually the liver. So it's the it's mm. the inner organ. So, so the, you've, you've got to like the, the gizzards. You've really yeah. got to. Yeah. So it's the lungs, the heart, mm-hmm. uh, the liver, oatmeal, as you said, some oats. Great. Our old friend Beef Suet uh, from the mm-hmm. uh, top half of the show. Mm-hmm. It's minced together. That's cooked. And then, you know, a lot of spices and things like that as well. But that goes inside the sheep stomach lining. You talk about non-photogenic foods. This would be a really good example of a <laughs> non-photogenic food. It's just kind of like a brown mush coming out of a sliced <laughs> open stomach casing. How do you eat it? Do you get your own hat? Or well, is it no. Like a- so it's it's more of a communal food. So the haggis is, without doubt, strongly, strongly associated as a traditional Scottish food. The exact origin, it's a little hard to pin down, and even the name is, origins of the name aren't quite clear. But there, there's no doubt that it's associated with Scotland. References go back as early as the 1400s. Wow. So this is an old, okay. old, old dish. Mm-hmm. One idea is, like a lot of these old traditional dishes, is it's you got to make the most of what you have, you know? And so this might be a dish that you're out on a hunt. You've just slaughtered a sheep or you're hunting. You've got to cook all this stuff right out in the field. Especially the inner organs are going to spoil the most quickly. Oh, yeah. So the idea is, what can you cook, you know, simply, uh, yeah, quickly know. to preserve it, you know, and not waste anything? The holiday or celebration. I should say that this is really associated with is a Burns Night Supper. And I don't know if you guys have had the chance, the privilege, some would say, to go to a Burns Night Supper, which is a celebration in honor of Robert Burns, Mm -hmm. the famous Scottish poet. After he died, friends and people wanted to honor him started having these celebratory dinners, largely because he wrote a very famous poem called Address to a Haggis. And so he is really kind of considered the father of marrying the haggis with the Scottish, just nationalist, traditionalist Mm -hmm. pride. So I had the uh, good fortune to go to a Burns Night Supper a few years ago. We had some friends. And it was an occasion, an elaborate sequence of events. It starts with a speech, a welcoming of the guests, the host will usually give what's called the Selkirk Grace. Is I'm going to do my best here. I'm not going to affect an accent, but it's written in uh, Scottish-style English. So this is the Selkirk Grace. Some hae meat and canna eat, and some wed eat that want it. But we hae meat and we can eat, 
and say, let the Lord be thank it. We have it and we can eat it. So let's go ahead and eat it. it. Thank the Lord. (laughs) And then is the presentation of the haggis, which is brought in on a large plate and Mm. it's, it's big. So the first thing that struck me was, wow, that's bigger than I thought. Mm. You know, I was imagining these like little personal haggises. Oh yeah. Uh, (laughs) A personal personal pan haggis. A mini haggis. Haggis hut. (laughs) And if you're doing it right, you might have some bagpipes playing. Mm -hmm. And then you read the address to the haggis, the, the Burns poem. And I am not going to read it because it is quite long. <laughs> As you read out the address to the haggis, there are actions that you perform. Oh, and the, wow. the signature action of the presentation is at the line, his knife see rustic labor dict. And you draw out as as dramatically as possible a big ass knife, and you stick it in the haggis, and you slice it open, awesome. and it is visceral and kind of entertaining. Yeah, it's it's kind of scary but very entertaining. Wow, wow that sounds fun. Let's like, do it. Yeah, this whole time you're also drinking, right? Oh yeah, oh, okay. oh yeah. No, oh, I mean yeah. this is we've all been drinking. Yeah. I I had some of the best Scotch whiskey or just whiskey if you prefer uh, mm. that I ever had that night. Yeah, nice. so we're drinking. Everyone's happy, and I. I have to imagine that part of the drinking is to get up the courage to actually eat the haggis yeah, if you've exactly. never tried it before. <laughs> yeah. It's like a party. Yeah. It really is a party. Yeah. And so, of course, this being San Francisco in the 2000s, there was also a vegetarian haggis oh, on hand uh, for those members of the uh, party mm. who were vegetarian. A tofagus. Vegetarian. <laughs> 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 Vegetarian. Yeah, well, we tried tofagus, and then we tried vajagus, but then we just settled on vegetarian haggis. It's for the best. It's for the best. That's where less marketing is better. It really guards against you doing anything cute with the name. I can't believe it's not haggis. Wait, so here's the question. What does it taste like? Did you did you like it? I, I'm going to fess up. I did not actually try the real haggis. What? Yeah. Uh, after all that? No, I, I couldn't. I could not bring myself to try the real haggis. You didn't drink did enough scotch. It? I would be pumped up. I was ready to eat it, right? Where you like take the knife and you slice it. It's mm-hmm. like So this is funny. A lot of people, Americans in particular, have a real misconception about what this dish is. Mm. So about 10 years ago, a haggis company in Scotland uh, surveyed a thousand tourists. They found out that 33% of American tourists thought the haggis is an animal. Like, it is just oh, like an a, animal like that you could go, ca- oh, I'm going to go right. catch some fresh-caught haggis right, and eat right, it up. Right. If you have a traditional Burns Night Supper, it would be on his the anniversary of his birthday, January 25th. Mm. So we had it sort so of in the same holiday so it's coming season. Up. It's coming it up. is we, coming up. we got a month, a month coming from now. We're going to do it. Uh, that's right a good job haggis party yeah and don't do what i did which is wimp out and not eat the haggis right yeah so another holiday food item that i was curious about and felt like investigating was the easter egg why are eggs associated with easter does anybody want to make a guess at this one is this birth yeah yeah what's one of those weird it's one of these like hybrids where they took a lot of the pagan fertility right yeah predates christianity the egg uh has been looked upon by many religions since the dawn of man as sort of like being representative of the universe and of birth and of life coming out of nothing and of course you know the the easter celebration in just as pagan religions winter solstice celebrations eventually became christmas right easter spring celebrations became 
Easter. It's no coincidence it's all celebrated around that time. For Christians, uh, the egg was sort of back-interpreted to also be the tomb of Jesus. <laughs> um, really? And life inside that, you know, coming out of it. Yeah. There yeah, was yeah. a lot of it, sort of the... The retconning when they would, <laughs> when they would sort of slam the two religions together. Yeah. yeah. But here's the question. Why do we color our Easter eggs? Why do kids color Easter eggs? It's just fun. Hmm. Um, so this is why some of the earliest, earliest Christians, when they were first using the egg as a symbol of life and eating it during Easter, would stain them red so that it was the blood of Jesus. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, um, and so, and so egg staining is a super, super, Super old Christian tradition. So when you get your kids together and you color Easter eggs, you are doing something that Christians have done for 2,000 years. Who even uses real eggs anymore? Because now kids just have plastic eggs that candies are hidden in, and that's what they go on their Easter egg hunt They for. do? Yeah. Well, we had those. I remember plastic kids eggs. Have a we never, good. We never ate. I mean, we would dye actual eggs. But we never we ate them. Yeah, we, yeah. we used to have to eat a ton of egg salad after <laughs> Easter, and it was like weird colored egg salad. And yeah. so let's go even deeper on this. Why does the Easter bunny bring Easter eggs? Well, I believe that's another that the rabbit was a fertility symbol as well. They, 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 they procreate quite <laughs> easily. Yeah. Hairs, spring, fertility, life, you know, that all kind of goes around the same celebrations. But again, the idea of the bunny bringing eggs. This is this is actually not a corporate invented tradition. Like this really does go back like centuries upon wow. centuries. This idea of the Easter bunny bringing Easter eggs for the children. Okay, because this is good job brain. We should get into some of this this science. Apparently, this came into the U.S. I was reading via like at least some like Pennsylvania Dutch. You know, when they were kind of coming over from from Germany, there was a word. I believe it's pronounced Osterhaus, hmm. which just means. Easter hair, as not a, a, as rabbit. Not a, a rabbit, right. but hairs, they have a lot of babies. They can get pregnant while they are pregnant. Yeah. What? Yeah, um, I had read that. In, in late pregnancy, Ew. they can get impregnated, and the fertilized eggs will just chill out in a, like a waiting area, basically, <laughs> and just like wait until the room is clear. It's like an on-deck circle. Yeah. Yes, they're in the on-deck circle. <laughs> And, and as soon as the hare gives birth, the fertilized egg's like, our turn. So you can never, you never not have to be pregnant. You can just be pregnant forever. No. And that is why Jealous they just, ladies. Yeah, yeah. And that is why during, that is why, you know, procreating like, like rabbits, because they can just crank them out. They get, they get a few ready. There's, there's babies on deck. There have actually been a very, very, very few cases in history of what this is called superfetation uh, in humans, where something will go wrong, basically, and a woman who is pregnant will get pregnant again. Um, and But here's the thing. You don't know, because it happens very close to each other. You think you're having twins. And the only way they can tell is if they, after the babies are born, and typically what happens is one of them is premature. Not necessarily the second baby. Sometimes the first baby can go to term. Very, very, very few cases of women thinking they, they they gave birth to twins and actually they got pregnant while they were already pregnant. Wow. And these are two separate I've pregnancies. I've never heard of that. That's crazy. Yep. Super rare. I thought this episode was going to be like, oh, celebrate the holiday with delicious food. But now everybody's kind of grossed out. <laughs> mm. I knew. I knew that it was going to turn into uh, weird and gross yeah. angles on foods. And I'm not disappointed at all. No. <laughs> okay. Well, we have one more final quiz today. Oh, our 
forgot to mention, we won an award a couple weeks ago. Oh, we yeah. Were, yeah, we were nominated for the 2012 Stitcher Awards for Best Games and Hobbies Podcast and also Best Album Art. Yep. And we attended the very fancy event hosted by Stitcher here in San Francisco, and we had a lot of fun. I think we had the most fun. <laughs> oh, yeah. We had a I think great that, time. That happens to us a lot of places, though. <laughs> we we met some very nice Good Job Brain fans. You know yes. who you are. Thank Absolutely. you so, so very much to you guys for coming up and seeing you. This was the first time that we had ever actually met any Good Job Brain fans who are not like our moms. <laughs> so it was, it was great. It was, face it to was, face. It was great. It yeah. was so much fun for us. So thank you guys for uh, for seeing hello yeah and we also uh provided entertainment for the award ceremony and we did some live trivia on stage and it was fun and we just met a lot of cool fans and and peers colin and i actually met a couple people from decode dc which is a political podcast uh very famous we were out to lunch with them and and they found out that we ran good job brain and were involved in the trivia show and immediately one of the women was like oh can we do trivia right now i have a quiz for you guys (laughs) 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 and so of course karen and i were like yeah we can do trivia and so she proceeded to ask us all right this is within seconds this is within seconds of meeting this woman it was great and so she asked us a question uh which i will ask you guys just in one second oh okay and and that will be the first question in a quiz that i have prepared for you guys here so get your buzzers ready so this quiz is going to be about geography specifically country names so all about names of countries and what they have in common maybe what they have different so here's the question that lena asked to me and karen and uh, I would like to brag that she told us that we were the only people who had successfully answered it. So <laughs> that wasn't even a humble brag. Uh, <laughs> there's no humble here. No, that was a braggy no. brag. All right. So this is a, a question that you guys can work on together jointly. There are ten countries in the world whose names are four letters long. Okay. And when I say names, I mean their common name. I'm not going to, you know, trick you. Techn- the Republic of? Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. So the common name that people call these countries. Ten countries whose names are four letters long. Why don't you guys see how many you can name? Well, okay. let, let me start with Africa. Okay. All right. Yeah, yeah do whatever you want. Mali, M-A-L-I, Togo, T-O-G-O, Chad, C-H-A-D. All right. Peru. Yeah, Peru. Oh, good, good. Fiji. Uh-huh. Oh. Cuba. Yep. I would add Iraq and Iran. Yep, yeah. oh, two good ones right there. And Oman. Oman, the only country whose name begins with an O. Correct. You've got nine. There's one left. Right. It is an Asian country. Okay. Laos. Laos. Oh, yes, yeah. yes. And that's it, huh? And that is it. Those are the ten. Technically, Laos, their name is the Lao People's Democratic Republic. Ah. And in yeah. fact, they specifically asked the United Nations not to call them Laos anymore. <laughs> so that's the only reason it's a little unclean. <laughs> and for a bonus question... Can you guys name the one country that used to have a four-letter name but no longer does? Siam. Yes, Siam, which is now Thailand. Good job, Chris. Now we're going to get into the meat of the quiz here and kick it up a notch. All right. There are, of these countries, three of them whose capital city also has four letters in the name. Can you guys name any or all three of those? Karen. Lima, Peru. Lima, Peru is definitely the easiest one. Oh, I think and, Fiji as well, but I forgot what. Yeah, the city you're right. Was. It is uh, the capital of Fiji is Suva. Suva, S U V A. S U V A. And I will be very impressed if any of you guys got the last one. It is actually Lome, the capital of Togo. Hmm. Oh. So Lima, I, Peru, 
Lome Togo, L-O-M-E, accent E, and Suva, Fiji. Wow. So that's a good trivia within a trivia question. Uh, Yeah. There are two pairs of countries who are what we call substitution neighbors, meaning that if you change one letter in the name of the country, you get the name of the other country. So can you guys name the two sets of countries that fit this description? Well, the the first ones are, of course, Iraq and Iran. Those are the easy ones. Yes. Yes. Oh, they're like one letter off. One letter off. There is one other set of country names where if you change one letter from one name, you get the other country. Mm-hmm. Purely coincidentally, like Iran and Iraq, this other pair also starts with a letter I. We can get this. We can get this. <laughs> say it, Ireland say it. Yes. and Iceland. Correct. Oh, yeah. Ireland, okay. Iceland, Iran, Iraq. Huh. Nice. Yeah. There are six countries whose name ends in the letter U. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to challenge you guys because I know you guys can do this. I need you guys to name Five of these six countries. Ends with a U. Okay. Country Peru. name ends in the letter U. That's so right. Peru. So Peru actually is on both of these lists. That's right. Okay. Macau? No, no. Macau would be a region, and there are a lot of regions. Ooh. So these would be, you know, sovereign states, members of the UN. Okay. Timbuktu? No. no. <laughs> that, that would be an old name. That would be an old name, yes. Yeah. Vanuatu. Correct. Tuvalu. Tuvalu, yes. Okay, wait a minute. These are all you seasons know, of Survivor. Survivor. Uh-huh. <laughs> There's not... another season of Palau? Survivor, yes. Palau. Palau. Oh, man. Guinea-Bissau. Oh, Guinea-Bissau, yes. Guinea-Bissau. I thought, yeah, you guys would get that one. And then the last one is Nauru. But that was good. You guys got, got four out of the six. All right. This part of the quiz is called Snow White and the Seven Stands. There are seven countries that end in Stan, S-T-A-N. And, of course, if you don't know, Stan means linguistically land of. Okay. So I'll give you one. Afghanistan is land of the Afghans. Okay. Karen. And you guys can do this uh, collectively if you want. Okay. Kazakhstan. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, Kyrgyzstan. Yep. Pakistan. Uh, Pakistan. Yep. Uh, Turkmenistan. Yep. Tajikistan. Yep. And one more. And one more. Afghanistan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Pakistan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, and Uzbekistan. Uzbekistan. Yes. So I had asked you about countries that end in the letter U. I'm going to give you guys letters. There is only one country that ends in the following letters. I will give you the letter. You guys buzz in quickly and give me the country. So, for example, if I were to say Q... A Middle Eastern country, you I, would say... I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Iraq. You would say Iraq. Oh, right. oh okay. okay. All right. This Asian country ends in the letter H. Dana. Bangladesh. Bangladesh. Oh. Correct. The only country in H. This European country ends with the letter K. Karen. Denmark. It is Denmark. Oh. This European country ends with the letter G. I was going to say hamburger. Very messy. It's a smaller country. Luxembourg. Luxembourg. Yes. Very good. So instead of last letters, we're going to focus on first letters here. I want you guys to tell me what are the only two letters that do not begin a country name. And for the purposes of country name, we'll take the United Nations here. Okay, it's not so Q. So, for example, right, it's there's Q, Q for Qatar. Qatar. Z, X. Zambia. X is one of them, Dana. Yeah. That's correct. There are no countries that start with the letter X. What is the other one? W. It is W. Yes! Absolutely right. Huh. 
There is a Q, there's V's, there's Z's, J's. No, J's. <laughs> West Germany used to be the W. <laughs> Would have been. Yeah. Yes, these are current listings. Yeah. All right, well, good job, guys. That was meant to be a little bit tougher, but uh, I think any, any one of these could uh, overlap with some good trivia questions. Poof. Good job. It's like smoke coming out of my ears. <laughs> All right, and that is our show. Thank you guys for joining me, and thank you guys, listeners, for listening in. Hope you learn a lot about Peru. Peru is very popular. <laughs> Fish that taste like urine, uh, <laughs> jello dishes, and all of these festive things that we talked about in this episode. You can find us on Zoom Marketplace, on iTunes, on Stitcher, and also on our website, which is goodjobbrain.com. And don't forget to check out our sponsor, bonobos.com, and we'll see you guys next week. Bye. Bye. Later. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.